Abram was a man of faith. He loved God because God interrupted his life while he was in Ur of the Chaldees out in Babylon. God told him to leave his home, leave his family, leave his roots, get up and go to a place that he would show him. Didn't even tell him where. Didn't tell him the map. Didn't even sign him up for AAA. He just said, go. And he went. His only insurance was the promise of God. He left Ur of the Chaldees and went north and a little bit west to a place called Haran, where he stayed, as some scholars believe, for 15 years with his father, Terah, who was about 100 years old. And he stayed there, and he really hadn't completely obeyed the Lord. But anyway, he finally gets to the place that God called him to, the land of Canaan. While he's there, a famine hits the land. And he looks out the side the flap of his tent every day and sees the ground is drying up. It's not raining. And caravans of people are going from the land of Canaan down to the land of Egypt to that rich Nile Delta. The soil was lush and anything would grow. That's what he was used to. He wasn't used to just waiting on the Lord for rain. And so as people were going down to Egypt, he got a little bit shook in his own faith and said to his wife, Honey, I think we better go down to Egypt. Now, God never told him to go down. He never consulted the Lord. He never said, Lord, is it your will that I go to Egypt? Of course, God would have said, No, I've called you to this place. Now, you trust me. But he didn't. He went down to Egypt, lapsed in his faith, lied to the Pharaoh, had his wife lie to the Pharaoh when he said, Sarah, tell them that you're my sister. Because as the custom is of the Egyptians, they're going to want to kill me that they might take you. Eventually, he leaves Egypt. And the ironic thing is that he leaves with a bigger blessing monetarily than he enters Egypt with. He comes out a lot richer of a man, more wealthy, than he entered Egypt with. He had many flocks, many herds, and as we see in this chapter, 318 servants along with him. When he gets back into the land of Canaan, where God told him to go in the first place, he goes to his favorite place, the place that God spoke to him, the place that he calls upon the name of the Lord, that little place north of Bethlehem in southern Samaria called Bethel, the house of God, and he calls upon the name of the Lord. What's beautiful is we have a picture of a prodigal son having returned and calls upon the name of the Lord, his father. He's strayed. He's gone into Egypt. It's been a lapse of faith. He hasn't trusted God. But as many steps as he's taken back, it only took one step in his heart to come back to the Lord. And that's the beautiful thing about God illustrated all throughout the scripture, isn't it? That no matter how often you go to Egypt, there's always Bethel waiting for you, that place of intimacy and fellowship, and it's a place we should never leave. No matter where we go, we should have that intimate relationship with the Lord. He comes back, and now in chapter 14, we have the story of Lot. We already read about last week, he pitches his tent towards Sodom. Lot was the nephew of Abram. And also, as we see in chapter 13, was the friend of Abram. Abram is a very gracious, generous human being. Though he was far more prominent, he had the upper hand. He was really the boss of the family. There's a strife between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abram. So Abram says, look, let's not quarrel. 
Lot, you can have anything you want. Look over the land. Just check it out. Take out your binoculars. Whatever you see is yours, man. I'll take whatever's left over. He wanted to make sure that Lot was treated generously. Lot moves and pitches his tent toward Sodom, a place already known in that time for great wickedness. Lot is making some compromises. He's concerned about what the world has to offer. Abram is learning to be concerned with what God has to offer, that God's promise is better than what the world offers. But he pitches his tent toward Sodom. Abram is different than Lot. We read about him in verse 18 of chapter 13. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt in the terebinth trees of Mamre, a Hebrew word for richness, which are in Hebron, a Hebrew word for communion. And he built an altar there unto the Lord. Now while Lot is flirting with wickedness, while Lot has let his guard down, he hasn't said no to temptation. He's sort of flirting with it, dating it, courting it, trying to see how far he can go without really falling into sin. In contrast to that, Abram is fellowshipping with the Lord. He's moved his tent toward Hebron, the terebinth trees out there in Mamre. One of our problems, like Lot, is that we say maybe to temptation. We don't flatly say no. Anytime you leave the door a crack open, you're going to be in trouble. Have you ever had a salesman come to your door and knock on the door? And he starts talking really quickly, and he's kind of caught you off guard. He's con you're a little bit confused, and you want to shut the door, but you can't because he's got his foot right in that crack. The best thing to do, and you don't want the product, is just simply say, I'm not interested, goodbye. Close the door. Because often salesmen are skilled at getting their way into your house and getting you to buy their product. If you don't want to, just say, no thank you, boom, close it. Lot should have done that, but he's flirting with temptation. The scripture says, flee temptation. Our problem is that we often leave a forwarding address. Satan, no, but I'll be right over there, all right? Because we know that his bag of tricks looks very fascinating, very colorful, very glitzy. And sometimes we like the tantalation, we like the temptation. And there are those Christians who sail so close to the lake of fire, their sails get singed instead of sailing the other direction. That was Lot. Now Lot's going to get into trouble. He's going to pay for it, as we see in chapter 14. He's going to reap the results. Chapter 14 is a record of the first war, the first battle that we ever read about in Scripture, a coalition of kings that have taken over the southern region. And we don't have our map down tonight because we didn't think we'd use it. But if you notice in the back of your Bible, if you find a map of Israel and locate the Dead Sea, the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, this was the region that five kings in a coalition had banded together sweeping through the land to take over the townships and the city-states surrounded by walls, occupied by kings in that entire region around the Dead Sea and the Jordan Valley. Um, you might be interested to note that for a long time, critics, having read chapter 14 of Genesis, said, Aha! We have found that the Bible is in error. 
For, they said, no place in secular history do we ever find a record of these kings. It's only in the Bible. Thus, the Bible is out to lunch. I love it when critics put their feet in their mouths, make stupid statements like that, only to find that the spade of the archaeologist will soon uncover some tablet, some inscription, and the tablets in Ebla of Assyria and some of the other regions in Ur of the Chaldees, they've discovered the inscriptions of all of these kings and all of these towns. Not one of them is missing. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, the king of Shinar, that Arioch, the king of Alasar, Kederlaomer, the king of Elam, and Tidal, king of the nations, that they made war with Bera, the king of Sodom, Birshad, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Admah, a place located at the southern part of the Dead Sea, Shemeber, the king of Zeboim, again a township in that region, and the king of uh, Bilah, that is Zoar, and they joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea looks today a lot different than it does now. Some of you have been on our tours to Israel. You look at the Dead Sea, and if that's all that you see of Israel, you're going to be very disappointed, by the way, because it's truly a, it's a dead area. It is desert. The Dead Sea is 1,290 feet below sea level. It is 25% salt solution. Nothing is alive in it. You can lay in the Dead Sea and float. Even if you can't swim, you could float all the way across to Jordan if you wanted to. But at the time, before God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, both secular history, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Scripture say that it was a lush area, very sought after, because of the way the Jordan River fed that southern region. It was like, very much like the Nile Delta. Beautiful place to grow crops. In fact, the Israelis and the Jordanians to this day grow their crops profusely around the southern tip where the Jordan River uh, connects into the Dead Sea. So it was a sought-after area. Um, they joined together in the Valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea, 12 years. They served Kederle-Omer, and in the 13th year they rebelled. Now this character, who has that strange name, Kederle-Omer, was the king of Elam, we read about. His capital, his throne, was in a place called Shushan, or Susa back in Assyria. Remember where Nehemiah was at when he heard the reports of the children of Israel? The walls had been torn down, the city had been burned, and the man came and Nehemiah wept, and he was in Shushan the palace as a cup-bearer for Artaxerxes the king. Same area. Kederleomar was the ruler of Assyria in Elam in Shushan, and now he sweeps through that southern area of the Dead Sea in a coalition and takes uh, control of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of these other places. In the 14th year, Kederleomar and the kings that were with him came and attacked Rephaim in Asheroth, Karanim, all these Eames, and I'm just going to go now to uh, verse 7. Then they turned back and came to En-Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazan Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together 
in battle in the valley of Sidim against Keterleomar, the king of Elam, titled the king of the nations, Amraphel, and all of the other kings, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. History tells us that after a few years of being under the oppression of these kings, these five kings, Keterleomar and his allies, that the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah decided to form an alliance among themselves and rebel against being under the thumb of this despot. And so they rebelled collectively against Keterleomar and these kings, and they said, okay, fine, let's have a final showdown out in the valley. And that's what this whole scene is all about. But Lot, now Abram's nephew, his brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, were taken, and they departed. So he was abducted, all of his wealth, And verse 13 tells us, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth tree of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshkol, the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now you're about to see another side of Abram that we have not yet seen. So far, I'm not too impressed with Abram. Though he is held up as the example of faith, a man of God, a man who trusted in the Lord, at this point he's still, I think, very weak in his faith. We've seen him as the man who lapses in his faith, leaves Canaan, goes down to Egypt, lies to people, gets his wife to lie. In chapter 13, we see the tender side of the man, a true friend, loving Lot, not wanting to quarrel, not hoarding things to himself, but being very generous. But now you see a man of courage who takes his 318 servants, arms them, and sends them out to rescue Lot, his nephew. He didn't have to do that. In fact, he could have said, serves him right, creep. Took the best of the land, went and pitched his tent towards Sodom, flirting with evil, flirting with temptation. You reap what you sow. I'm not going to lift a finger. He made in his bed, now let him sleep in it. I know a lot of God's people that do that. When somebody falls down, they're quick to point the finger. But the scripture says, if a brother is overtaken by a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So do you meet those qualifications? First of all, have you seen a brother overtaken with a fault? Most of us would say yes. Second, are you spiritual? If not, get spiritual. Humble yourself before the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. And then thirdly, restore him. Don't kick him while he's down. Don't condemn him. Don't say, well, tough. Restore such a one. How? In the spirit of meekness. How can you be meek? You consider yourself and you say, there but for the grace of God go I. It could have been me. I could have fallen. I'm human. He happened to fall. I'll restore him. Abraham had that kind of a heart. And he was very courageous. When Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house 
And he went in pursuit as far as Dan. This guy, as we said last week, must have been very wealthy. Because he had 318 who were able to be armed as well as those who were unable to be armed that were in his home who had to stay behind and watch after the estate. But he had 318 born at home in his own palace, in his own uh, tents, who were able to go out and fight. He's a man of action. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he had kind of a, uh, a military strategy. He divided his men, pursued them probably from the rear, had the other guys quickly circle around the front to trap them. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. Now you're about to be introduced to two interesting characters. Abram now meets with two kings, one from God, the other from the earth. His response to them is very different. They themselves are very different. To one, Abram is very dependent. To another, he's very independent, and he has very different words. And it's very interesting, I think, for us as believers in our relationships uh, as such in this world. First one is Melchizedek, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram. Of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and, he, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. This guy bears pausing for a while and considering. He's very strange. First of all, what he brings he brings bread and wine. His name, Melchizedek in Hebrew. Melech is king, Tzedek is righteousness. He is called the king of righteousness. He's the ruler of Salem, ancient Jerusalem, the city of peace. He comes and he blesses Abram. And uh, then at the end of verse 20, he gave him a tenth of all. He paid him a tithe. I'd like you to keep your finger here and turn over to the book of Hebrews chapter 7. Let's get a commentary on him as he's unfolded. Hebrews chapter 7. By the way, Melchizedek is mentioned three times in the scripture. Mentioned back in Genesis that we just read. He's mentioned in Psalm 110, predicting the Messiah who will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then in chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, being translated the king of righteousness, and then also the king of Salem, meaning the king of peace. Now listen to this. This is wild. Without father. This is describing Melchizedek. He's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, 
but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Whoever this character was, and there's a few different conjectures as to his identity, it seems by reading Hebrews that he had an eternal nature. You know, usually the Hebrews would say, Melchizedek, son of so-and-so. They would give the parentage. In this case, it's not given. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. He comes out with bread and wine, interesting symbols, especially a New Testament church looking back in retrospect. A new priesthood, excuse me, a priesthood is established. I don't say a new priesthood because he's the first priest that we ever read about in the scripture. The priesthood of Aaron, which you're familiar with from reading Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and so forth, is the priesthood of the Jews in the tabernacle and in the temple. Before the priesthood of Aaron ever existed, there was this character named Melchizedek. It's because of these scriptures, Psalm 110, Hebrews 7, and what we read in Genesis, that scholars, some of them believe this is a theophany, an appearance of God, more directly a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And that Melchizedek actually is Jesus Christ who appeared, not having mother, not having father, indeed the king of peace, indeed the king of righteousness. And it says, he remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils. We know that Jesus Christ himself was and is eternal. It was predicted that way. In fact, the Messiah, as predicted in Micah chapter 5, would be one who would come to Israel, be a ruler, and have an eternal nature. The prophecy goes like this, But to you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you be small among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, even from everlasting. In Hebrew, the word everlasting means from beyond the vanishing point, or from vanishing point to vanishing point, an eternal nature. That's Jesus Christ, the Messiah, predicted. So it could be that Melchizedek, the first priest, the only priest we read about so far, who established a new priesthood, and Jesus is a priest forever after the order, not of Aaron, who is the priest only for the Jews, but the order of Melchizedek, an eternal priesthood that preceded Aaron, is Jesus Christ. Or it could be that he just is some personage, personage that existed, God just put there without parents, and continually lives on. It's a tough call. The most important thing, however, is that the priesthood of Jesus Christ still exists. You know, it is possible as Christians, I see it so often, to get hung up on scholastic debates about Melchizedek and uh, the priesthood and who was he and his identity. Books have been written about it. And, and theologians get hung up on that, neglecting the most important point. What's the most important point? You and I have a priest tonight who will live forever who represents us before the throne of God. He is not after an earthly Jewish order that has an ending 
that did end when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, but continues. Is that good news? You betcha. You have a representative before the living God, a priest. The word priest in Greek means pontifex, or a bridge builder, one who grabs the hand of the Father and the hand of sinful men and brings them together. And so the scripture again says in Hebrews chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like as we, yet without sin. Therefore, let us come, <clears throat> excuse me, let us come boldly before his throne, the throne of grace, that we might receive grace, or we might receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. That's great news. We have an eternal priest, and anytime you're going through anything, maybe your friends have left you. Maybe someone you knew walked out on you, rejected you, and you think, God, help me. You see the trial that I'm going through. It is at that point that Jesus can say, yes, I can relate to you. I had my friends leave me. I know what it's like to be rejected. I know what it's like to go through the trials of life and live in a, saint, a, a world stained by sin. I know what it's like. He's able to be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Melchizedek either was Jesus Christ or in the very least a type of Jesus Christ. It's very interesting that he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, Genesis 14, of God Most High. The first time that phrase is ever used in the scriptures right here. In Hebrew, El Elyon, the Most High God. In distinction to the many gods that the Canaanites would worship, Baal, Ashtoreth, and the like, the moon god, from the Babylonian times and hundreds of others. This speaks of a monotheistic belief, the Most High God. How did he come to know in, and believe in El Elyon, the God of creation, the God of Noah? Strange character. A type of Jesus Christ, or perhaps Jesus Christ himself. And uh, back in verse 18, it says that uh, he was the king of Salem and the priest. Isn't that interesting? Two offices are seen together, never before, until Jesus Christ is a king, a priest. Always those offices are separated, at least in, in Israel. There was only one time when a king decided to become a priest. His name was Uzziah. He was a good king until he got prideful and thought, you know, I know I'm not a Levite or anything, but growing up I always wanted to be a priest. I guess now that I'm the king I can do anything I want. So I'm going to play priest today. So he got on the garments of the priest and he intruded into the priest's office and walked and started offering incense before the Lord. Thought, I'll bring that priesthood and that kingship together. I'll be a king priest. The priest saw him offering incense in the holy place and they rebuked the king. Get out of here. You can't intrude into the office of a priest. God hasn't called you. In his pride he remained and rebuked them and God struck him with leprosy. And he remained leprous until the day that he died. Because God never intended, after Melchizedek, for there be a, to be a combination of a priest and a king until Jesus Christ, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, would be that one to fulfill it. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. He sure knows a lot about God, as you read verse 19 and 20 carefully. And blessed be El Elyon, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. You know, I often hear people say, well, the tithe is just 
from the law of Moses. We're not under the law anymore, therefore there's no tithe. The tithe preceded Moses. And by the time it got to Moses, the tithe, the 10% of your income that was given to the Lord, that was only, there was actually three tithes in Israel. It totaled to 30%. You give 30% of all that God gave you unto the work of the Lord. You come to the New Testament, the tithe is the very basic. The scripture says not just give 10%, give that, you know, bare minimum. It says God loves a cheerful giver. God doesn't like people who give grudgingly, and we kind of touched on that issue this morning, so we won't delve into it tonight. Now the king of Sodom, verse 21, said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, El Elyon, the possessor of heaven and earth. The first king, Melchizedek, that Abram meets, he's dependent upon. The second king, he becomes independent of the king of the world. Now the king says, listen, you take the spoils, you take the booty because you won this battle. Just give me the people back, the people from my town. You can have all of the spoil that belongs to you. That was very rightful for him to do that. The code of Hammurabi, the ancient ethical code of that day said that the booty would be entirely the victors. And so he could have taken it all, but his reaction is the opposite. He wanted God to get the glory. I love it. Notice what he says, verse 23, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours lest you should say I have made Abram rich. He wanted to be dependent upon God. God had already blessed him financially. He didn't need this money. Nor did he want any person to take advantage of him so that later on he could say, well, you know, Abram's rich because I gave him all the bucks after that battle. He said, I don't want anybody to be able to say that. I depend upon the Lord, the possessor of heaven and earth. Except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, Mamre, let them take their portion. You know the sad part is that in this entire story, there's not even one thank you or mention that Lot comes back to thank Abram for this. Now he might have, but the point is there's not a mention of it. The scripture does mention that Lot was a little bit indifferent toward Abram, took the best part of the land, moves his tent toward wickedness, Sodom and Gomorrah. But there's never a mention that he's thankful, which I think is very reflective of the human heart. We are quick to complain and we are slow to give thanks. And I think that's perhaps one of the reasons God commands us to give thanks unto the Lord and to sit down and count our blessings. Because being born with an evil nature, we are quick to see the black dot upon the white sheet in life. Oh, woe is me, I've got so many problems. Well, guess what? Who doesn't? But God is good. Remember the lepers that Jesus healed? One came back and said, thank you, and praised Jesus. And Jesus said, where are the other nine? That's a pretty good ratio, actually. There's about a one to nine ratio of thanksgiving to forgetfulness and complaint. Lot doesn't say a thing, goes on. <laughs> Lost everything in the process. Chapter 15 is where God comes to comfort his servant Abram. He's just had a very tiring episode fighting a battle. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. 
your exceedingly great reward. What a promise. Why did this happen to him? Why did it come at this point? Well, I have a theory. I've watched what happens after people go to war and return. In fact, those who have fought in the Vietnam War and have come back from that battle are being treated today for what physicians call post-traumatic stress syndrome. They were able, it seems, in the heat of the battle to face it, to take the stress, to take the pressure. They were able, when they really needed to give out, they were there. After the battle, however, all of the phobias and the symptoms of the stress have even to this day taken a toll upon these young men, now middle-aged men, who have given their lives in many cases or limbs for their country. Post-traumatic stress syndrome. It often happens after an episode. We had a fellow here in the church who, as a believer, growing in Christ, after just maybe a year of his walk, he was growing, making strides, being discipled, discipling others, found out that he had cancer. The cancer was in a very precarious place. They had to radiate. They put him under cobalt for several uh, series of treatments. He lost his hair. He lost his strength. But he remained spiritually, inwardly, very strong. He was able to bear up under the load. Until the doctor came in one day and said, We've taken the x-rays. We've ran more exams. You have a clean bill of health. We licked the cancer. It's gone. That same day he crashed. Such stress, anxiety, shakes, depression came over him after the battle had been fought. And for a long time, he fell away from Christ. I can't believe God would let this happen to me. Yeah, but you're better now. But it caught up with him, you see, and his system was now processing all of that stress. It could be that Abram, you know, we read about the battle in a few short verses. We think, oh, you know, it was a day's work. No, it's not. It probably took months, maybe even longer. And after this, perhaps he was thinking, I don't know, this, this Keterleomar, man, he was pretty big, pretty impressive. He has a big empire. He could come back and get me. I mean, he already made a coalition with five kings. He could go out and get ten more. And who am I, man? I should have just stayed back in Canaan. I shouldn't have pursued this guy. And maybe he started getting fearful. And I believe it was at that point that God spoke to him in the midst of some fearful episode. And he said, don't be afraid. You don't tell a person not to be afraid unless he is. You don't walk up to a person who's very confident and Man, praise the Lord. Say, don't be afraid. <laughs> what? I'm not afraid. You only say that and exhort a person who is experiencing deep anxiety or, or fear. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I love it. He didn't say, go get the assault rifles. Go get the catapults. You better defend yourself. No, I am your shield. Hey, man, you trust me. Don't go down to Egypt like what happened before. You stay in that place of trust. I am your shield. Every army needs protection. Every servant of God needs protection. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. The shield of faith, the Word of God, prayer, and all of those weapons that the Scripture in the New Testament speaks about. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. I love that. 
In the previous chapter, he was offered a reward. Take the booty, man. Take the spoil. It belongs to you. No, I don't want anybody to say I made Abram rich. Maybe after that, in the middle of his post-traumatic stress syndrome, he thought, you know, I should have taken that booty. I could use it right about now. 318 servants are now back at my home. I've got to feed them. Should have taken that reward. Stupid business deal. I had him in the palm of my hands. God said, don't be afraid. I am your reward. You know, there's a concept there. You can't outgive God. I don't know if I should give this to the Lord or not. I can't afford it. You can't afford not to do it. I would challenge anyone to see if you can outgive God. Try it. Test God. It's the only time in the Old Testament in the entire Scripture where God commands His people to test Him. Test me. See. If I won't open up heaven and pour out a blessing, you won't even be able to contain. I have found personally that to be true in my own life. I sit back and I marvel at the strange things that have happened or been given to me over the years. Give, Jesus said, and it will be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will men give to your bosom. Now that's never to be the motivation. All right? Well, golly, I'd like to get a lot, so I'll give so that I can get. Now, that's a sour motivation, and I detest those people on television who tell you to give so that you can get. Misplaced priorities. You give unto the Lord, never expecting anything, as a sign that everything you have belongs to Him. God says, I'm your shield. I'm your exceeding great reward. Don't worry, Abe. I'll take care of you. Now, Abram has an interesting response. Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? <laughs> Abram, I'm your shield. I'm your exceeding great reward. Yeah, what is it? What is the reward? What are you going to give me? Sign on the dotted line, Lord. Seeing that I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but the one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. What's he speaking about? Again, the Code of Hammurabi, the ancient ethical code, dictated that if you could have no kids, not only was it a shame to you, but your servant, the eldest servant in your house, and he had many of them, would become the son, become the heir, and take over all of the inheritance. So that would be Eliezer. He said, Look, God, I don't have any kids. I've just got this Eliezer, and he's kind of has his tongue sticking out, panting because he wants me to die so that he can have everything I own. I don't even have any offspring. And yet, Lord, my name is Abram. You know what kind of taunts that I get? Because my name means exalted father. And I don't even have one kid. I'm the joke of every civilization this side of the Jordan. Come on. You made a promise back in chapter 12 that my offspring would be greater in number than the sand. Where is it? I mean, I love your beautiful promises, but I want something concrete. Now, you might see that as irreverent. I see that as specific. Lord, I want kids. <laughs> I love specific prayers. I think God does too. Instead of, well, God, just bless me. God wants to bless you, but I think God will also 
place things on your heart and want you to be specific so that when it does occur, you'll remember, wow, I prayed for that. God answered it specifically. I rest in the hands of God. It will increase your faith to pray specific. Look at the great prayers of the Bible. Look how specific they were. Not always lengthy, but to the point. Filled with scripture, filled with faith, chocked full of hope, but always specific. I refer you sometime to Acts chapter 4. When the disciples were being persecuted in Jerusalem. So they all got together and they decided to pray. A law had been passed not to preach the gospel in Jerusalem. That didn't bother the disciples. They had a prayer meeting. They said, Lord God, you made the heaven, the earth, the sea, everything that is in it. Nothing too hard for you. You see their threats. You spoke about it in Psalm 2. Now give us boldness. That we're able to go out on the streets of Jerusalem and do what got us in trouble to begin with. The scripture says the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and with boldness. And they went out again to the streets of Jerusalem. A specific prayer given a specific answer. Lord, I want a kid. <laughs> what I love about God is that God doesn't say, Hey, watch your tongue. You're speaking to God here. Of course, he could have done that. He could have just said, and you just got blown away and he could have picked somebody else who would be maybe a little more moldable. But he didn't do that. Now there's an important case in point here. I find that often God's servants were rebellious against God. Or a little bit cocky. Or at least bold. He was specific, at least bold. Jonah was rebellious. God did not shelf Jonah. Though were I God, I would have. Jonah, get up. Go to Nineveh, preach against it. Tell them I'm going to destroy them. Nineveh's 500 miles due east. Jonah gets up, goes 2,000 miles due west to Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. A prophet of God, imagine. I would have said, all right, fine, go. I'll drown you. I'd have commanded the whale to digest Jonah. Not to spin him up on dry land, but not God. God is far different from you or I. God was so interested in changing the heart of his servant and developing him into a man of faith that he sent a storm and a great fish and a lot of heartache until he said, Uncle, I'll do what you want. I'll go to Nineveh. Say, great, learned your lesson. Now vomit this character up on dry land. <laughs> At that point, he was open to anything God wanted him to do. I find it's very true that God is not only interested in doing his work through you as an instrument, as a vessel, but he's interested, moreover, in accomplishing his work in you. If you blow it, if you fail, you can be shelved, but you really have to continually go out of your way to get to that point, I believe. I think God will pursue you. The Holy Spirit has been called the hound of heaven. And he will hound you, and back you into a corner until you turn back to him in repentance because God is concerned to grow you up. David said, the Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. The work that God began, Paul said, he will continue to perform until the day of Christ. Isn't that a great promise? And so instead of Abraham, listen, I don't like the way you're... Don't take that tone with me. He took this weak man of faith 
and desires to mold him into a great man of faith, which we see in the next few verses. I don't know if we'll have enough time to get to it. Ah, yeah, we will. It's right here. And so he brought him outside, and he said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. (laughs) Was he able to number the stars? No, he could see with the naked eye about 340-some stars with the naked eye. It was possible. He didn't know that in the Milky Way galaxy there were 100 billion stars. But if you can number it, start counting, Abe. See what you come up with. And he says, so shall your descendants be. What a promise. You are unable to number those stars, even as you will be unable to number your descendants. Now we might scratch our heads at that and say, now wait a minute. I can number the population of Jewish people in this world, give or take a few thousand. What does God mean? God means, and he's not trying to use this as a number that goes on and on, but what he's trying to say is that the promise, if you read Galatians chapter 3, I believe between verses 26 through 29, it speaks of the fulfillment of this promise. It says, we who are heirs of Christ are also heirs of Abraham. We who are the seed of Christ, excuse me, are also the seed of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ and heirs of the promise of God. The promise was fulfilled in that there was a physical seed, the children of Israel, to whom God still has made a covenant and will fulfill his promise and is doing that to this day in Israel. But there's also the spiritual descendants of Abraham by faith. The next verse sheds some light on that. It says, and he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. That is the basis of Romans chapter 4. That's the basis of the book of Galatians. That is what set Martin Luther free when he spawned the Great Reformation and took those 95 theses and hung it on the door in Wittenberg, Germany, and a great revival began. He read, the just shall live by faith, And he also read this passage. He believed God and he accounted it to him for righteousness. The word accounted means to impute, to record, or to credit. In other words, because Abram simply said, all right, I believe you. That's good enough for me. I don't have a kid. I can't see anything visibly. You said it. I will believe that it is just as good as if I had a son. I believe you. It's all I need. You made a promise. And at that point, God imputed or counted righteousness to his account. And that becomes the basis of faith in the New Testament. Abraham believed God. The word believe, by the way, in Hebrew, in this text and in many others, is where we get our word amen. It could be translated, Abraham said, amen. And at that point, it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so... Uh, For next week, since our time's up, you might want to read ahead to Romans chapter 4 and uh, (laughs) get a little bit of that background as we pick up in verse 6, 7, and move on. And we see the covenant that God makes. Actually, we're at a great closing point tonight because Paul says in Romans 4, 
that even as Abraham was justified, not by works, but by faith, you and I are justified or made righteous before God, not because you're religious, not because you grew up in a church, not because you are doing righteous things and thinking, I'm going to be a good boy this week so that I can be saved. You are saved completely on the merit of an act already completed. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ died on a cross. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And whoever says, God, I believe that the blood of your son Jesus was good enough for you. And it's good enough for me. And so I believe that he's my Savior. And I believe that if I trust in you, that you'll cleanse me of all my sins. At that moment, God will account it to you for righteousness. You don't have to be baptized to find that assurance. It's when you believe it is accounted to righteousness. You don't have to become pious and do all sorts of good works to earn God's favor. In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, but you can't earn God's favor. If you try, you insult him. You are saying that his righteousness can be bought. That you can somehow be good enough as he is to merit it. But no one will ever be able to stand before God and say, Hey, I deserve heaven. You owe it to me. In fact, I strongly suggest you never ask God for what you deserve. Pray that he'll never give you what you deserve. Ever. Next time you're worried about your rights and what you deserve, just remember the cross, that it took the greatest demonstration of God's love to prove that no work you could ever do is good enough for you to merit heaven. And I love what my friend Roy Gustafson says. He says, I strongly suggest when you stand before God that you not read the list of your own works. When God says, what right do you have to come to my house? That you look around quickly for the man with five wounds. When you find Jesus, you say, him, he invited me. I have the right because of what he has done, and it's on his merit that I come. Many people we find come to the fellowship Sunday nights, Sunday mornings, in different times, who've never yet made a personal agreement with God, where they say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm separated from you. And I recognize that. And I also recognize that I've not done anything about it, though you already have on the cross. You might be a religious person. You might have grown up in a traditional Christian faith, but you yourself have never made a personal commitment to the Savior. That describes lots of people in this country who are saying, I'm saved. I grew up in a Christian home. It's been well said, God has no grandchildren. He only has children. Oh, but I go to church. Well, you know what? I went to McDonald's yesterday. I'm not a Big Mac. I was in my garage this morning. I'm not an automobile. You sitting inside of a church does not make you a Christian. A Christian is someone who is born into the kingdom by an act of faith. And you need to come to Jesus Christ. You say, well, I believe in my head. I know God has always existed. I grew up believing in that. Well, the Bible says in the book of James, even the devils believe and they shudder or tremble. They never believed with their heart. It never made a difference in their life. There was never any changes. Scripture says, As many as received him, to them he gave them the right to become the children of God to those that believed in his name. 
So tonight, if you've never made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, as we conclude this study, we want to give you that invitation. And you reach out to him, and you believe by faith, and he'll interrupt your life. And he'll do some great things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you made a covenant with Abraham. You gave him a promise and he believed it and at that point he was considered righteous. You made another covenant 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem at a place called Calvary where your only begotten son had his blood shed for the sins of all the world. And whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, I pray that those of us who have never made that trustful commitment to Jesus Christ would do so tonight. And as you're in an attitude of worship at this moment before the Lord, perhaps with your heads bowed, thinking of your life, perhaps we described you and you don't know Jesus Christ, but you'd like to. You'd like to know him. You want to make a commitment. You want to surrender to him tonight. If you do, I'd like you to raise your hand right where you are so that I can see your hand and pray for you before we close off this meeting. If you don't know the Lord, but you want to make a commitment to him and see changes in your life and have a new start, you raise up your hand right now and keep it in the air, and I'll pray for you. God bless you. Anyone else? Raise up your hand high in the air. Just say, Skip, pray for me. I want to, I want to meet Jesus tonight. I want to know him and have assurance that my sins are forgiven. Just raise up your hand. God bless you over here on the side. Anyone else? As God is speaking to your heart, toward the back on the side over here. Anyone else that we can pray for tonight? In the back, in the middle, over here on the side? If God is speaking to your heart, you know it right now. Better listen to his voice. Get that hand up. Say, Lord, here I am. Save me. Here's my hand. I'm drowning. God bless you. Several of you. Thank you, Lord. Anyone else? You have a few moments left. Consider it carefully. Okay, you can, all of you, put your hands down. Father, we thank you for the work of your Spirit and eternal work. How we thank you tonight, Lord, that the Word of God was able to penetrate heart and seeds were sown. And the gospel was responded to. Father, for each one that has raised his or her hand, we commit them now to you and pray that as they turn to you in repentance, reach out to you by faith. As they surrender their lives to you, Lord, I pray that we would see those changes now and they would begin to see purpose and meaning in their lives develop. Give them the assurance that their sins are forgiven as by faith they come to you. And Father, we pray that they would grow. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 In Jesus' name, amen.